Hi, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. Uh, welcome. Look, here I am at the gorgeous wine lair. This is the show that takes you on the deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, sometimes we talk about travel trends. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about wine. Sometimes we talk about culture. But it all comes back to the industry. Now, if it's your first time here, hello and welcome. Uh, a little background on me, who I am and what I do. So I've been covering the DC food, wine and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. Chances are, if you live in the DC market, you've read the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything that's happening in the DC metro area. We have the only calendar of every food and wine event, festival, gala, you name it, it's in there. Every restaurant opening that is opening is in there, and every restaurant that is coming soon is coming in there. Also, every, I feel like I'm saying every a lot, but every single promotion that is happening around the DC metro area is there. So Valentine's Day, dry January, restaurant weeks, whatever it is, we got you covered. Of course, you tune in every Sunday to Foodie and the Beast, 1500 with my husband David and I, 14 years on air. We've been married for a lot longer than that, 27. But um, you can check us out. It's the only food and wine variety show in the city, and we feature people from all over the world. It's always a ball, lots of drinks, lots of food, lots of fun. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, Twitter for the moment. It's probably going to be something else soon. Uh, but that'll keep you in touch with all my travels, because I have been traveling, and all my eating, because I eat a lot. And then, of course, here we are in the wine lair of this great, gorgeous private wine club next to the Ritz-Carlton here in Washington, D.C. And look at me. I'm so in my element, surrounded by fabulous wine bottles. Of course, there should be wine glasses in front of me as well, but not when I got a show to do. So, uh, for those of you who are watching us, hey, we're on YouTube now. It's so exciting. And for those of you who are listening, hey, but you can also watch us on YouTube. Uh, so please uh, subscribe to both the podcast and us on YouTube. Okay, so let's talk about my week because it's been fun. I got to look at my notes because even though it's been seven days since I was last year, I have really been out and about. So fabulous event at the Japanese embassy celebrating the food products and agriculture of Fukushima. Now, you may remember that Fukushima was uh, had the terrible nuclear accident uh, because of the tsunami um, years and years and years ago in 2011, but they have done remarkable work to bring that prefecture back. So I got to learn a lot about the products that are coming out there from sakes to rice uh, to uh, fish and uh, cattle and etc. And it is an amazing, amazing story. I do hope that a trip to Japan is in my future because of it. Um, Stop by Joy by Seven Reasons. It's sort of this new hot place that's happening in Chevy Chase. The Seven Reasons guys are very big right now. They've opened like five properties in the last few years. The food is good. Fair warning. The food is expensive. But I mean, a lot of restaurants are expensive. I feel like this one is a little bit higher uh, for a casual restaurant, but it is hopping, great cocktails, a terrific wine list, and everything we have is really competent. I think it's finally a place in Chevy Chase that may stay in that location because that location has turned over like a thousand times. Um, so I went to brunch at 
Teddy's and the Bully Bar, not Ted's Bulletin, not that there's anything wrong with it, but Teddy's uh, Teddy's Bully Bar. And I'm embarrassed to say that I'd never been there, given that it's been around for like 11 years. And that place is on fire for brunch because they do bottomless brunch, but not just drinks, which I did not partake in, but they do bottomless food dishes. So the entire time, it's like a dim sum. They're just passing around food, really excellent options like waffles and fried chicken, these massive pancakes, uh, healthier options too, like avocado toast. And it was just great. So if you're doing like a party for brunch, which is what I was there for, I would recommend it. Okay. Very quickly, you know, I'm a high tea person. I go as often as possible. I have a partner in crime with that. My daughter-in-law, Alyssa and her sister, Erin, both join. We like to do it together all the time. If my daughter Tess is in town, she comes with. My son, Sam, was very upset that he wasn't a part of high tea, so he came too. So we did a fabulous high tea at the St. Regis. I'm really going to kind of award it at this moment, one of the best high teas in the city. It's really refined. The teas are fabulous. They're from a French house. They're specifically made for the St. Regis. They have gorgeous tea sandwiches. You can get the Vleuve Clicquot with it. I don't really understand why you would have champagne while you're drinking tea, but who am I to judge? Uh, and the scones are fabulous because to me, it's all about the clotted cream. Uh, then I just came back from a little tour of the Shenandoah. So much is happening out there. It will all be on my social media shortly. Crimson Lane Vineyards is opening up. I got to spend some time with the winemaker and uh, the couple who is opening up the property. It's going to be a must-hit spot. Uh, when it opens up in March. And then I got to spend the night at Avaca Farms. Such a fabulous, gorgeous location. They are raising what is called F1 cattle. It's half Angus and half Wagyu. All the restaurants in DC are carrying it. It's a very high-end product. I got to sit with the farmer and uh, the people who are raising these cows. I got to play with the cows in the field uh, and learn so much. So I will be passing on all that knowledge to you. But now I want to get into today's show. So as you may remember, back in the fall, I was blessed uh, by being asked to interview a uh, famed author and amazing storyteller, Michael Twitty. Um, it was on the main stage of the Capitol Jewish Museum Festival, and I did a whole industry night about it. Um, so please take a look at past episodes. And while I was chatting with Michael, I met and began chatting with Lenitra Berger. Um, so Lenitra is an associate professor of history and art history, and she's also the director of African and African American Studies at George Mason University. And she told me that she was doing a program with Lauren Strauss, was also here with me, uh, who is a senior professional lecturer, history, history department and Jewish studies program, and director of undergraduate studies, Jewish studies program at American University. So they're working on this program together about Jewish studies and black studies. And I was like, I have got to learn more. Um, given what's happened in the world today, sort of pre-Kanye and now post-Yi and Dave Chappelle and all these things. There's so many ways that the Jewish and Black diasporas come together, even though sometimes we come apart. Um, so I'm looking forward to learning more about it. And I want to thank you both for sitting here and listening to me talk about all the fun things that I'm eating and drinking. You're but uh, right, well, that is my job. Okay, so 
Lonitra, let's start with you. I'd love to learn a little bit about your background and how you got involved uh, in this whole process. Thank you so much, Nikki, for the invitation to join you and Lauren in this conversation. And I also want to thank Michael Twitty for bringing us together. He's such a convener and a connector. And this is just a really great outcome of that wonderful book presentation that he gave. Um, so I am a professor of Black Studies at George Mason University. And that means that I have the pleasure of getting to do scholarship and teaching and research with colleagues and students about questions in the black diaspora. And I have been interested in black history since I was a young child. Um, I grew up in San Bernardino, California, which is about an hour east of LA. And my mother was an antiquarian book dealer as a, just kind of a hobby. So she would go on weekends to thrift stores and she would be looking for rare books and she'd give me a dollar and she'd say, here, get lost buy some books on your own while I look for rare treasures. And she actually found some really rare examples of um, black manuscripts. And she showed them to me and I started to look through them and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. But I never thought that that could be a career. So it took a long time for me to graduate high school and get to college and realize that one, I could combine my interest in art history with my interest in black history. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up in grad school and studying um, African-American culture. Um, and now in my role at George Mason, I get to share that passion for research with students. Um, my work looks at the intersections of the Black and Jewish diasporas. So I'm looking at ways in which Black and Jewish artists came together to promote art through social activism. And I think that's a really good way to meet faculty in Judaic studies like Lauren, whose work is, is also very similar. Um, so we've been working together for the past year or, or more, actually, um, to develop a course that would really highlight the important aspects of the Black Jewish relationship for students. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now um, and how Lauren and I got a chance to start working together. And um, she'll probably tell you a little bit more about the, the person who really got us connected. Great. Thank you so much, Lenitra. Okay, Lauren, so let's hear about your background a little bit and how you wound up where you are today. And then I do want to hear about how, because now we know Michael Twitty connected you and I, but how you both got connected. Well, I'll answer that first. Uh, there's an amazing, also another connector. Uh, I also want to thank you for mm -hmm. the invitation. This is great, you know, adding another person to our circle. And a man named Alan Meltzer, who is a recent alum of American University. And he is uh, an older student who finished, who went back to school later. And he's just just interested in the world. And he is particularly passionate, among other things, about uh, blacks and Jews, their relationship. He's Jewish. Uh, his daughter, uh, his daughter's husband is African American. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. And he convened a group, an incredible group of people. Uh, we're all meeting on Zoom during COVID to talk about sort of what we can do, what we can bring to that issue. And uh, he brought clergy people and heads of uh, Jewish community um, centers, and we were among the few academics involved. Mm -hmm. And so we started talking about this class, and the class really grew out of that group. 
Amazing. Yeah. And, but let's just back up a little bit to hear uh, just sort of your uh, journey to getting right. to here today. Uh, well, I grew up uh, across the country from Lenitra, mostly in New Jersey, a few mm-hmm. other places. Um, if and, you're on YouTube right now, you can see we both have big hair. And, Our Jersey right. roots run deep. Uh, right, right. Yes, very important. And I grew up in a in an, an activist uh, Jewish youth movement uh, called Young Judea, which is dedicated to... Uh, Israel education, but also to pluralism and activism. And their uh, theme really is about changing the world. And so I'm never content to just let situations um, remain as they are, uh, really because I I grew up being expected to be the one to change them. So um, as part of that, uh, the rabbi in my synagogue who was also uh, involved with that movement, he is, he's very famous. His name was uh, Dr. Joachim Prince, and he was a refugee from Nazi Germany. And he, as soon as he came to this country in the late 30s, he began to get very involved in the civil rights movement. He became very, very close friends with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, he marched with him. And he actually gave a uh, a now well-known speech right before Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech um, on the uh, on the National Mall. And in that speech, Dr. Prince talked about how the greatest crime is not uh, is not um, abusing people. And he's referring to his his experiences in Nazi Germany. The greatest crime, he said, is silence. And so that's really, I, I grew up with that as a major influence and also my family. Um, I come from a family of fairly recent immigrants from Eastern Europe. All of my grandparents were either born there or one, one grandparent was born about a minute after uh, her family, her mother got here. Um, and uh, and so they were fleeing pogroms. They were fleeing anti Jewish violence there, and here they they made their homes uh, mostly in New York, a little bit in the Midwest, in Dayton, and um, and they really focused on food, family, and community. And so I grew up really surrounded, and I think that that's something that we really have in common that we've talked about the idea of family and food, and also a larger community, really be- being something that both brings people together within their own community and also enables people to build bridges with others, even from very different communities, because you have those those values. So I would say that that's, that's what inspired me. And I have been um, teaching Jewish history and Jewish culture for a long time with a focus on uh, political and cultural history. Well, so what I really would like to get into is let's talk about the bones of the program that you're doing together because it has so many unique offerings. And and I'd like to talk a little bit sort of about the two diasporas and sort of the cultural heritage of each and where they can and do intersect. Sure. So um, as Lauren said, we were part of this larger group that met um, throughout the summer to talk about how could we bring black and Jewish communities together in in community and have opportunities for people to overlap through their 
religion, through food, through cultural outings. Um, and so the class was one part of that, of that group's conversation. So because Lauren and I teach at two different universities that are on two different schedules, we had a lot of challenges in trying to align the courses. So anybody who's from the DC area knows that traffic is a big thing and people really don't want to sit on the beltway for a long time. So we couldn't have one class because the students live too far apart. So instead what we decided to do was to each teach our own classes at our own universities. So our class was named the same, Blacks and Jews in America. Um, but I was teaching students at the Fairfax campus of George Mason, and her students were at American University. Right. So we shared um, some aspects of our syllabus. And then we had several times throughout the semester when students had a chance to interact with each other. So my class was virtual and hers was in person, but we figured out how to make that kind of hybrid situation work. Um, and so students had a chance to meet each other in a hybrid format. And then we did the outing to the Capital Jewish Food Festival um, where people could go in person and also have that food experience where they could eat and, and sample Jewish food. Um, and then the, we had a couple other meetings throughout the semester on Zoom. So the themes um, were similar. The underlying principle of the course was the same across the two classes, um, but because we each have different academic backgrounds, we, we, we had certain weeks that looked a little bit different from each other. Is that what else would you add? Or well, yeah, because I'd like to know more about like the focus, right, and uh, about the diversity of the class and the interest of the students who were taking the class and what what you were hoping, both of you, they would leave with. One of the interesting questions that I get frequently when I say that I teach Jewish studies, history, and literature is uh, people say, do you ever have any non-Jewish students? And, um, it, you know, I usually give a flippant answer, like I'm from New Jersey, so I'm sarcastic. Right. So, and I say, you know, if you take, take a class in ancient Chinese history, do you have to be an ancient Chinese person to take that? Uh, you know, I, I don't know why that's the assumption in, it, it so happens that in this particular class, uh, a lot of the students, the majority of my students were graduate students. Mm -hmm. And although I obviously don't go around the class and say, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? It was obvious from what people said, you know, they self-identify. They, mm -hmm. I, I went to Catholic school growing up or whatever. And, uh, so people were taking this particular class in my case as a, uh, part of their interest in American culture and also in minority group, uh, relations mm -hmm. and also civil rights. Uh, some people focused on the South, some didn't. Uh, we, I had a, a, several students who were doing the public history program at AU, and so uh, I actually sent the, the students on their own time to both the Holocaust Museum in downtown Washington and also the African American uh, History and Culture Museum. And so we talked a lot about not only the issues, but also presentation and how, and interpretation. And so, uh, so people were really taking it, um, as a reflection of their interest in larger American sort of group interaction. Well, I think what's interesting, so when, you know, the Capital Jewish Museum came to me and we were talking, I was like, I'm sure people are like another Jewish museum, you know, because I think the Holocaust Museum right. is like, yeah. it's like right. a museum of 
Jews, but it's not. It's just about an atrocity and the history of it and obviously mm -hmm. all the things that go with it. So I think with what you guys are doing, having a place where people can go to learn more about sort of how what the Jewish history is in the city is going to be very interesting and an excellent, an excellent addition to what you're both already doing. Yeah, the class, the class was really interesting to think about how, how we were going to teach it because you can't assume that any one student's going to have a full background on black history or on Jewish history. So you want to find a way to bring the students up to speed so that they, they have a working knowledge of the events that we're talking about. But at the same time, you want students to talk about issues and, and big questions and really wrestle with those big questions. And what are those questions? So some of those questions include, you know, how, how did the Black Jewish Alliance evolve? How did it, how did it start and how did it evolve? Um, what, um, what, in what ways did Black and Jewish people work together and collaborate? So th that looks a, a lot of different ways. There's political um, alliances, there are cultural alliances. Um, I was really pushing my students to, to question whether there really was an alliance. So are they really, are we really looking at individual people coming together or are there really concerted efforts among social movements for people to overlap between the black and Jewish communities. And I wanted to push them because I really wanted them to dive into the, into the reading and really think about what the scholars were saying and think about how scholars are interacting with each other on these questions and really start to see themselves as scholars and contributors on this subject as well. So undergraduate students tend to feel very uncomfortable in that space, but that's how we want them to start to evolve as, um, as they go through their undergraduate careers. And I didn't want them to just think that there was a triumphal narrative in black Jewish relations and that we had somehow reached a peak and that, yay, everything's great and, and we're finished. So I really wanted them to understand that there were a lot of, of, of nuances and, and points in, in which historians disagree about whether or not there really was uh, as strong of alliance as we might think there was. Well, I think, you know, nuance is always a key word in these conversations and uncomfortable is also a key word to me in this world of sort of like, you know, woke and all, you know, there's all these like terminologies used, which I think are inappropriate. I mean, if somebody's coming to the table because they want to understand better and they want to learn so that they can be more successful in their lives in engaging with people from different cultures, isn't that the whole point? Yes, it, it is. And it's, um, it's hard because people are also um, exposed to social media, and so they're using uh, a lot of, you know, whatever the trendy terms are. I was going to say that um, one of the challenges, as Lenitra pointed out, is giving people enough background, enough historical background, especially, <coughs> sorry, to have a common vocabulary um, and yet leave time for discussing these larger issues. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think I approached my class more chronologically at, at first, starting by, by giving some of the background and, uh, so that we could have that framework to refer to. But one of the larger issues also for me, and I think your students as well, is the extent to which this is not only reflective of blacks and Jews, the black Jewish relationship, and also as, you know, as a side issue here, 
we shouldn't even talk about them as always being separate communities right. because as Michael Twitty and others demonstrate, there are also Jews of color, black and, Jews and your and children Jews of color, your yeah. children. Um, and so that, that's a whole other issue, but, but talking about them as two communities, that's not the only, uh, the only sort of perspective that I wanted the students to have. It's also what this says about America and the larger society, um, and the, both the possibilities of, as I said before, minority group interaction, but also where, uh, someone is, where their group is on the scale of what's accepted in America mm -hmm. is, uh, is really reflective of the country's values at any particular time. And, and in many ways, certainly the Jewish story in America is one of, of kind of a sliding scale in terms of how Jews have been perceived racially, um, how they relate to other ethnicities. And this is, frankly, looking at Jews as an ethnicity and as a, a group of the heritage, not so much focusing on religious, you know, on, on issues of faith or belief. And so through this, we're able to see that the way that Jews have been treated, perceived um, at different times, different junctures in American history, and also regionally in different places, um, sometimes uh, usually actually not being seen as white uh, well into the 20th century, certainly at least until the 1930s, and then start starting to kind of shift into this uh, this gray area of white ethnics. So we're Greeks and Italians and Jews might fit in. And then only really the latter half of the 20th century being considered often white, except for Jews of color. Um, right. uh, that really says as much about America and its changing values as it does about, you know, what the Jews themselves are trying to do. And then putting that in contrast to the black story where there hasn't been as much movement and as much agency in sort of deciding how you want to identify um, is also really uh, exposes deep racism and also, you know, class divisions. So a lot about America as well. Well, as we talked before the show about, um, you know, how people identify themselves, you know, I said I identify myself as Caucasian because that's how I think of myself, but mm -hmm. you do not do that. But that is based on what we see in the mirror, whereas you have darker skin, you identify as black and that makes sense but that changes perceptions right so we all have to deal with things in a very different way and as we talked about yesterday um uh, you know being in israel so in israel i assume most jews do not identify as caucasian because they're all the colors of the rainbow right, right, in right. you know in the middle east yeah, and the majority color. of israel's jewish population is uh from either from the arab world right, from the middle Sephardic. east um, uh, they call them Mizrahi in, mm -hmm. in Israel, uh, either the Arab world or Persian or North African, um, or of course Ethiopian from Ethiopia, right. from India. And, uh, and so it's actually a minority, a bare minority, uh, right. is, uh, so-called Ashkenazi with, uh, backgrounds in it's East, just Eastern and Ashkenazi Central Europe. Here. I mean, it's what we here, know. Here, that's the majority in the States. of American right. Jews. Yeah. Right. 
So that's what, you know, we're so laser focused on only what we see in front of us, yeah, not yeah, what yeah, else yeah. is over there until we get our eyes open. So yeah. how do, what is your interest in these, in these conversations and what are some of the, the sort of trials that you take your students on, especially when we talk about cultural? So I came into this subject, um, as a young person, and I've only now as an adult had a chance to really reflect on how long I've been thinking about this subject. So my parents both came from the American South to California, escaping segregation and racism. And um, they lived in California because they wanted me to have a better life than they had in the South. And so over the years, as I was growing up, they would tell stories about some of the awful things that they experienced um, in Alabama, where my mother was from, or South Carolina, where my father was from. But the only times that they mentioned some really positive experiences about their childhood would be when they had interactions with Jewish people in the South. So my mother attended Tennessee State University in Nashville, and she studied math and science there. And she had the benefit of studying under the German Jewish refugee scholars who um, escaped Germany and came to teach at HBCUs. And she spoke so highly of those, those professors that she said, if you're ever in a place where you need help and there are no black people around to help you, you should find a Jewish community because they have always been supportive of the black community. As a child, it didn't, it didn't quite resonate. Um, I didn't quite put all those things together. But as I started to do my own research on, on black culture, black art, you always saw examples of Jewish connections to supporting the black arts and helping to, to cultivate the black arts. In, as far as funding or in what capacity? Yes, so funding, philanthropy, patronage, um, in the case of someone like Jacob Lawrence, who's a very famous African-American painter, um, Edith Halpert was a Jewish woman who allowed him to exhibit in her gallery. So across the spectrum, um, where black people were able to flourish in the arts, you often find that Jewish people are, are, are supportive in a variety of ways. And I noticed this pattern as I was beginning to write my dissertation. I thought back to what my mother said, and I thought, wow, there was something to what she was telling me. So um, I then started to explore this in another context in South Africa in a book that I wrote about a Jewish artist who painted black women during apartheid. But in that case, it was, it was very clear that the Jewish community was co co coalescing around questions of their own racial identity during apartheid, but also driven by a religious value to repair the world and, and to speak out against injustice. And I found that to be a really compelling story, and it paralleled what I had learned about my own parents' upbringing and my own observations in the United States. So I wanted to explore that question both as a researcher, but also to have students ask that question and explore that question, because I don't think it's, it's one that we widely discuss um, in academia, but really give students a chance to understand some of the nuances that Lauren mentioned about identity and community and how people are not just one thing, they're not monolithic, they have multiple layered identities. And the more that we understand and, and respect that, the, the better we are as, as citizens, as professionals, as people who live in community with one another. Yeah. One, of the, one of the things that, uh, that I think is different in our experience teaching this 
is that I think in a lot of ways, I would not feel as comfortable telling those stories as Lenitra is because, <coughs> sorry, That's because, okay. um, you know, for me, uh, I, I don't stand in front of my class and say, hello, I'm Jewish, but it's, it becomes fairly obvious. It might sound like apologetics. If I only told them these positive, true stories right. and manifold examples of Jews uh, helping, you know, black artists and uh, and as educators, etc. Well, um, but again, it's yeah. not it's not Jews. It's Jews. I mean, it's people who happen to be it's individuals, Jewish. right? But they don't just happen to be Jewish. They are getting a a message from mm -hmm. growing up as Jews. They definitely are getting that message from their community. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, whether it's morals and ethics or a, a historical uh, consciousness of, of being the, bearing the brunt of persecution elsewhere and not wanting that to happen to other people. Mm -hmm. So it is, of course, as individuals, but it also is is a reflection of them being members of the community. Mm -hmm. um, I I felt uh, a you know not really a burden, but I I felt that it was a responsibility to also talk about less attractive, uh, less positive examples of black Jewish interaction and um, give uh, sort of you know a, a fuller fuller-fledged picture of Jewish interaction with black customers in changing neighborhoods mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, um, point out that sometimes there were insensitive comments made by Jewish store owners or uh, by Jewish union leaders, etc. On the other hand, I felt like I needed to inform the students about the mostly positive history, certainly, and not only the civil rights movement of the 60s, but also in the 30s and also earlier in the century, the founding of the NAACP by many Jews and others, um, because the conversation has really turned, including in the American Jewish community, I would say, especially among younger people, to being very, very critical and only looking at the negatives and, and only, you know, all, all of a sudden, um, using words like white privilege, uh, to describe the Jewish community. And there's some of that. And there's also a lot of the positive. So I, I found myself in the classroom often feeling like I was balancing between, you know, not wanting to appear partisan and mm -hmm. apologist, but thinking, gosh, you know, this class may be the only time and place that they are going to hear about all the positives as well. That is really um, interesting. And I think about my own experience when you talk about that. And I think about my children's experience. You know, the further and further we get away from the people who left one area to come here, it changes how, how connected you are, you know, unless you're really looking to hear those stories. But I, I want to shift it a little bit because I want to talk a little bit. I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the culture of the black experience and the Jewish experience, we both celebrate in similar ways and it comes and it, families and we come to the table. And I'd like to talk about how that intersects 
in both the cultures. So I love to eat, um, and I have fond memories of family meals. Um, as I mentioned, my parents are from the South, so they love some Southern food. So grits, cornbread, fried chicken, collard greens, all those were part of our regular um, household menu. I had the benefit, though, of having grown up in California, my mother really absorbed Mexican food. So, so we'd have carne asada that she was out of this world. And then she might, you know, make fried chicken for Sunday dinner. And I just have so many memories of us having family dinners. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was always important to me to, to also bring when I have my own family. And my husband is Jewish and his family came to the United States from Poland in the late 60s. So we have a black Jewish household. Um, we celebrate Shabbat on Fridays. And that's the one point in the week where we really come together for a family meal. So I found that I, I have a responsibility in a lot of ways to make sure that our children are exposed to the to black and Jewish cultures, but most importantly, the food that's associated with those cultures, because that's where you have conversation and that's where you have connection. So I'll make, um, you know, what would be considered traditional Southern food, but I'm also trying to step up my game as, as, as the, the wife of a Jewish man and make sure that I can cook a good brisket. You made brisket. I was going to say, that's right. I made the brisket. Yes. And we um, have, for many years, had a black Jewish Seder at Passover. Mm. So we have um, celebrated Passover with a family who since moved away. Um, they were Jewish. So we would come together um, and we would always invite a, one non-Jewish family to come and experience our black Jewish Seder. Mm. And we would use the Haggadah from, um, from the NAACP called the Common Road to Freedom which is a really beautiful Haggadah that, that includes um, lots of references and passages to black culture as well as Jewish culture. And our kids love it. They really enjoy it. So I, I point to that as one example of where we can merge the, the, the two cultures together and really talk about the history and the culture behind everything. But the meal is really centered ar around the food and the symbolism of the food. Mm -hmm. So we try to have a mixture of, of elements of black culture in our Seder, but also elements of, of, of Jewish culture, of course, because it's Passover. So um, that's really where we try to bring everything together so that our kids understand that Yes, they're black. Yes, they're Jewish. But there are also black Jews. And what, is that, what does that mean to embrace both? Which I love. And I think I told both of you the story that when I was in Israel this summer, I met the Ethiopian community. And I had no idea of the Ethiopian story and of the Jews who were Ethiop Ethiopian Jews who traveled from Ethiopia in the 80s to come to Israel. And, um, you know, I think you said this earlier but growing up in the States, growing up on the East Coast in the States as um, a Jew, you know, you're really myopic. You're just myopic to all the other ex uh, experiences that are out there as uh, under the Jewish umbrella because you think it's all New York. Right. You know? <laughs> Yeah, my family certainly does. Right? I mean, I know my family does. So um, so let's talk about you from the culture, also how you both bring that 
together with your class? Uh, right. Well, I think that one of the things we all have in common, besides curls, is we love food. Mm -hmm. I love food. Food is just central to everything. Um, I just want to make one comment based on uh, Lenitra talking about the Seder, though, that is, in general... The Passover Seder is, uh, has for a long time been an area where um, blacks and Jews and, and other communities can come together in, in a Jewish context. And right here in Washington, D.C., um, really one of the things that started that all off was in 1969, the Freedom Seder that was created by Arthur Wasco, now rabbi. No, he wasn't a rabbi at the time, and uh, Reverend Channing Phillips, um, which met met on April 4th, 1969, exactly a year to the day after Dr. King's assassination. And they um, re-edited the, the Passover Haggadah, the book that, that Jews use uh, during a Seder, to reflect um, what they felt were the problems in the world at the time. So the, the modern plagues and racism, environmental degradation. Well, it is a story of enslavement. Uh, so it right, does, right. It rings so true. Like, I'm right, going to look right. that, um, I'm going to look up, for, we call it a Haggadah. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. I, yeah. I would totally use that at my Seder. It sounds fascinating. Right. It is. So that, that has a long history. Um, and, and the Freedom Seder will be covered, of course, in the Capitol Jewish Museum when sure. it opens. So my family, uh, is very focused on food, the family I grew up on as well as now. Um, less so on specific dishes, although, I grew up with uh, very traditional East European Jewish foods, some of which my children will not touch right. now, especially tongue. Yeah, I won't touch tongue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and But you know, when cabbage, you're in the food industry, right. I got to tell you, when yeah. you're in the food industry, they want to throw awful at you all the time. If I tell you how many times a chef puts a plate in front of me and they're like, heart. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not yeah, doing that. Yeah, right. So, so, anyway. so right. So I, I grew up with that and with Kugel and things like that. But what I think I absorbed um, even more than the specific dishes was the idea that you should always have a lot of food as if possible and that your home should be able to absorb um, unexpected guests. And I really, my mother was like that, uh, is still like that. My, my grandmother, her mother was like that. Um, I always wanted to be the house that could, that, that could absorb either extra kids that my, my children brought home or, uh, when I make Shabbat dinner, I always make way more than we expect to eat. And, uh, if they're leftovers, fine. I eat them during the week, but I want to be able to have that last minute family. So it's less the specific dishes although I do love to cook and I cook a lot. I keep a kosher home, a fairly strictly kosher home. And we have a combination of carnivores and strict vegetarians uh, in the house. So, so it's, it's, it's about, always it's right. But the idea is more about the the quantity and the, the openness. And, and one of the things I love is when my kids, uh, who aren't home now, uh, when my mm -hmm. kids would walk in, on a Friday afternoon, uh, when I'm cooking something and they, and they would all say, oh, it feels like a Friday afternoon. Mom's, yeah. you know, getting ready for Shabbos. And, um, so that's, it's all about food and people. Well, and I think you mentioned this about celebrating on Friday Shabbat dinner and, and bringing in the lights and doing all that. 
I think for people who, when I, as I mentioned on that trip to Israel and I was with a bunch of non-Jews and we did a Shabbat and actually one of the things they did, but I thought was fascinating is they had specifically the people who were not Jewish lead it. So they were told what the prayers were and they said, don't worry, we'll say the prayers, but you say what you want to say as a blessing. So one of the women was a wine writer. You do the blessing over the wine. What is it? that means something to you. And they did the same thing with the bread and sort of about the group being together. And it was a really powerful, powerful moment because I think instead of looking at under a religious context, it was, oh, we're all gonna like have this meal together and we're gonna relax and we're gonna, you know, welcome the night into the day. It was, you know, it was a, a real moment yeah. and I think Every, I, I don't think it has to be religious. I think everybody yeah, should yeah. want a break on Friday. Yeah, you know what right, I mean? Right, absolutely. So now looking at this project that you do, two are doing together now, how does it culminate? What, what are next steps? So I think we're still reflecting on how the, the class unfolded, but um, I would certainly love to teach the class again. Um, having learned a lot of lessons from the previous semester, um, I'd love to offer it more regularly so that more students have this opportunity. My leadership of the African and African American Studies program has been focused on creating more partnerships across disciplines and across cultures. And so I fostered a relationship with our Judaic Studies program, which is new. We have a new minor and a new program. So we want to do more programs with um, both, both types of students. Um, we're going to do a community Seder at the Jewish Community Center in March. And so I will bring some of the African-American studies students, both who took the class, but also others who are interested mm -hmm. to that Seder. So really having people have a strong grounded foundation in African-American studies, but to understand how it connects and intersects with all these other disciplines and programs. So we're teaching the, we're, we'd like, love to teach the class again. Um, and I incorporate aspects of black and Jewish identity into all of the courses that I teach. So I'm teaching Black Renaissance this semester, and we will talk about Julius Rosenwald and many of the other Black Jewish collaborations. Um, and I'm working on a larger book project about how Black people see, see Jews in, through, through portraiture. So I'll be continuing my study of this subject from a research perspective, but teaching is what I love to do the most. Um, because it really helps you to understand yourself as a scholar. Um, and it's wonderful to see students making those connections. So really to get more students to have these, these hard conversations in, in the context of this course theme, um, that's what I'm, I'm planning on. Before I hit you up, Lauren, I just want to ask, do you get a lot of, are you getting any pushback? Are you getting pushback from any of the students? Do they, does anybody sort of challenge either of you really about whether, uh, whether blacks have done certain things or Jews have done certain things? Is there, is, is, especially given the current climate, is there a lot of pushback? So one of the, the hard conversations that we had in the class was a conversation about, um, racial violence like lynching and violence that was committed against Jewish people in the forms of either pogroms and, and the Holocaust. 
And I, I did my best at the beginning of the class to let the students know that we're not comparing here. We're not trying to say that one group's experience was better or worse than the other. And it was very challenging to keep students on on task. Um, and sometimes we did veer um, off, uh, off track. And some of the students felt um, offended in some ways that maybe um, some of the, the, the Jewish students were implying that slavery was not as bad as, as the Holocaust. It's not a competition. Right. We were not, we were not competing. So trying to keep them on track was, was, was challenging, but was really important for us to keep the conversation moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I can tell just a quick story about how that really resolved itself when I showed a video. Um, it was a news report about a Romanian village um, in which all the Jewish people had been murdered during the war. And we were watching the video, and at the end, one of the students in the class who was an older, older auditor student, um, you know, he was visibly very upset and moved because he recognized the town as where his family had been from in Romania. Wow. And so I didn't know that in showing the, the, the video, but his just very visceral reaction really brought it home to the students that this is very recent history, mm -hmm. that it's affecting individuals in the class and that they are, are able to talk about this. Um, and it really helps, especially the younger students to see that this is not in the distant past and that there are people who are living with this trauma as we speak. Mm -hmm. And that helped us to kind of stay moving forward and not get into this competitive, you know, um, um, situation between the two types of atrocities. But that was one situation in the class where it was really challenging as the instructor to keep everybody, you know, in a productive conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And what about for you? Um, I do plan to teach the course actually uh, a year from now, next mm -hmm. spring. And uh, Lenitra and I talked about how to <laughs> better deal with the logistical obstacles. So um, mm -hmm. she is she's going to come visit as a, as a guest speaker. And uh, I think that uh, I've realized that I'm including matters of race, racial identity in courses that I hadn't seen earlier, uh, you know, that that issue could be relevant. I'm teaching a survey of uh, modern Jewish civilization right now, and our next class, we're actually looking at two different articles about um, about how Jews were view, viewed as non-white in um, revolutionary France, and and how um, Enlightenment thinkers uh, were very uh, often very inconsistent in how they applied their enlightened uh, ideas mm. to blacks in France and also to Jews. And so I wouldn't have necessarily thought about it in a racial, uh, from a racial perspective earlier. <clears throat> so, uh, so besides teaching this class again, um, in terms of scholarship in the wider community, in the wider world, something that I started talking to a couple of people about at the conference, the Jewish Studies Conference, Nitra and I were both at in December, um, is that there is real interest in the scholarly community and doing more work. And I'm hoping to put together a, a scholars working group in the Washington area and maybe wider 
for us to uh, have these conversations. Um, and finally, I, I think that the the campus climate and the climate in the country, unfortunately, has, uh, aside from the black-Jewish relationship and all kinds of sort of sensationalized things like Kanye slash Yi and all of that, um, the rise in anti-Semitism um, in this country over the last decade and uh, and the the more open conversation about race, especially since George Floyd, um, has given, has given rise to certain productive conversations about the, what, what anti-Semitism and racism have in common. There's an amazing article that I think we both assigned by Eric Ward uh, about the linkages between uh, anti-Semitism and racism and, and the role of white supremacy and and all these other factors. I think I read that article it. because it really it's basically really says important. that white supremacy goes to pull, yes, pull right. co communities apart so exactly. that they dislike each other exactly. so that that the white supremacy right. can right. rise, right? Because right? yeah. it's yeah. easy if there's fractions yes. instead of working together. So the moment yeah. of tension that Lenitra described in her class um, that some people call the oppression Olympics, right. you know, making it a competition. Um, the there's, no winner. In, right, there's, <laughs> there's no, no winner. winner. There's no right. winner. There's no winner. So so those kinds of realizations make it doubly important to uh, to learn about and respect each other's you know, pain and each other's history mm -hmm. uh, because that's the only way that that we can you know overcome these things on the campus um, increasingly on the campus and in the country in general so I think that that not only within the classroom but the kind of dialogue and the kind of bonds uh, that people have as a result mm -hmm. hopefully will go toward um, you know uh, reducing the tensions and making people realize that something really productive can actually come out of this. Well, I really hope so. Um, and we're going to end on that note because I feel like we've had an amazing conversation. Lauren, can you please tell everybody where they can find you, either online or on Instagram, <laughs> so that they can follow what you're doing? I'm not really on social media much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm told that I should have an Instagram. And, uh, so, but I'm easily findable if you, if you Google me and, uh, you're welcome to email me also at AU. Thanks. And I have a website, lenitraburger.com, where you can find both of my books. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Lenitra Burger, Twitter at Lenitra Burger, and LinkedIn at Lenitra Walker Burger. So happy to connect. Thank you. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me today. Um, these can be really uncomfortable conversations, but I think what you both have presented is that when you bring people to the table, whether you dress it with food or not, the more inte uh, intellectual curiosity that people have about others, the better we can understand each other, work together, live together, not be in some sort of Olympics to find out whose ancestors were treated worse when, but instead look forward to have a healthier, happier community. So I, while this is not a traditional industry night show, um, I do think it was a really important conversation. And I want to thank you both for taking the time to sit with me today and have it. I, I learned so much and I hope that, um, 
our listeners and our viewers do too. Quick wrap up for the show. So I want to thank everybody for joining me today on Industry Night. I know it was a little different, but come on, you definitely learned something. Um, please check us out on YouTube, Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. You can subscribe. It's up and running. And of course, you can find us on every uh podcast, Spotify, Apple, whatever it is that's out there. Um, don't forget to check out the list. Are you on it.com? The online zine that tells you about everything happening in the DC metro area. Follow me at NYCCI and E L L I S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the moment. And uh, big thanks again to the wine layer peeps for keeping me running up here and my great hardcast media guys who do all the hard work. And lastly, quick reminder out there, staff shortages are still real. So are supply shortages. Restaurants are a little pricier, but you know what? If you do go out, take your kindness pill. Remember, everybody wants you to have a good experience. I'm going to use that for restaurants and retail. Go to an airport, wherever you're dealing with customer service, when you're interfacing with people, take your kindness pill. Nobody wants you to have a big, bad experience. Just... And enjoy what you're really trying to do. It's just no fun being angry. So thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next week. Produced by HeartCast Media.